So if you will, in your Bibles, open to to Genesis chapter 3, and we'll begin reading in verse 8 for time. But you, as you turn there, let me set the context a little further for you. Uh, Creation. God has spoken, and day 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6 in succession have come, and then the Sabbath, the seven-day rest. And then we learn more about these elements of creation, and particularly God's creation of man in his image. And we, we see something of the Trinity mentioned there, don't we? Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, our. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit mentioned in those earliest chapters. But then the serpent, who was more crafty than any other beast of the field that God had made. And we see the temptation come, and we see the fall of man into sin, believing the lie of the serpent. As God said, you shall eat from none of the trees in the garden. God never said that. Satan is the father of lies. He's the father of sin. Eve succumbed. Adam succumbed. And then we read this. After they've realized their state, their plight, their sinful condition, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But... The Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, that is, God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you've done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust. 
and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures always and forever. Let's pray and thank the Lord for that. Father, we do come thankful that you've given us your word and that it is replete from beginning to end with this message that we have a Savior who is crushing the head of the serpent. The original source of all sin has been dealt a fatal blow and we have the wonderful benefits of that victory in Christ Jesus. Give us the faith that we need to believe. Increase our faith, Lord. And for any here this morning who have not believed, who do not know Jesus Christ, who have not tasted and seen that indeed your grace is good, may this be the day that you enliven them, that your your spirit gives them a new heart full of faith and repentance and turns their eyes to the King of the kingdom, even Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. It is true, as uh, you may have heard, that there is a scarlet thread that runs through the Bible. In fact, some of you may have owned a Bible at some point that had perhaps a, uh, a uh, note in the front, maybe some editorial matters up front. They offered you some, some good introductory material for reading the Bible. And there may have been a, an article in the front of your Bible before you got to the inspired part, Genesis 1-1, that talked about this scarlet thread. And the reason they did that is because there is a scarlet thread. There is this, this thread of continuity that runs through the whole Bible. After all, it's one God, same yesterday, today, and forever, who has one voice to one people forever. And so it shouldn't surprise us that the message remains the same from the beginning to the end. It doesn't matter where you look. It's the same. Um, when you go to the New Testament, a few Wednesdays ago, Pastor Morris on Wednesday night took a look at the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. And he just for a few moments made some highlights for us. We could have gone to chapter 3 of Luke and done the same. The two write with different purposes and so they highlight different aspects of the genealogy of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you went to, for instance, to the, to the Luke passage, you would find him beginning when Jesus was 30 years old, being the son, as was supposed, that is, the way the people thought of it, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi. And he works himself all the way back to the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the Son of God. So he works us all the way back to the garden. 
Well, that should be a hint to, to careful readers that, that if the genealogy runs from Adam to Jesus, then the message runs from Adam to Jesus. It's the same message. We, we don't find a God who's compartmentalized. He doesn't chop up history. He, he has one history. It's unfolding. It's that eternal. I was just teaching through the book of Hebrews in Peru. And when we came to the end of Hebrews, we were reminded, Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of what? A whole bunch of broken up stories. No. A whole bunch of stories that depend on man's reaction to God. No. By the blood of the eternal covenant. You see, that eternal covenant that God decreed in eternity, just kind of, he just swept into history. And with Genesis 1, the story of that eternal covenant just starts swooshing through all of history. That's the reason the Bible makes sense. It's unlike the Book of Mormon. It's unlike the Quran. It's not a bunch of disjointed stories from smallest to shortest or from to this to that. It's a, it's a common theme, the scarlet thread, Jesus Christ. So it shouldn't surprise us that here, in the very beginning, we have mention of the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, well, that's a bit stretching it is. Now I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. I mean, that's Jesus? Well, it might be stretching it if we didn't believe the book is an organic whole. And then we go to Micah, as I'll do in a few moments. Then we go to Galatians, as I'll say in a few moments. And we realize, oh, it's not a stretch at all. God has spoken. And he's explained. So he gives us this little bit of information right here in the garden. And then little by little by little, he explains it to us. Aren't you glad he does it little by little by little? That's the way he deals with us now, isn't it? He just brings us along little by little by little. We call that sanctification. He doesn't justify us and then glorify us. He justifies us, he adopts us, and then he begins this wonderful, gradual, slow, slower in some times of our life than other times, slower in some people than other people. This wonderful work of sanctification, making us holy, 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 as he is holy. And so he is, we say, he is disclosed in his revelation to us, progressively more and more about himself. Not different and different about himself, but more and more about himself. And so let's look at this. Very briefly, we have not much time, but we want to look at this. As I've said already then, the scarlet thread, the beautiful message, the incarnation, it's everywhere in the Bible. It's the doctrine of the Bible. 
It's the expression. Notice something here. It ha- it's given to us in the context of sin. How often is it that we come to this time of the year and uh, we talk about Christ is the reason for the season. You hear it on the radio. You, you, you see it even placarded in department stores in some cases. How often do you hear people say, Jesus is the reason because we're sinners? You know why we celebrate the birth of Christ? Oh, it's a wonderful time. A little baby born in Bethlehem, born in a stone manger. It was a glorious time. Freezing to death in the muck of a, of a barn. Well, even if they get that graphic, which they don't usually, you know, we, we clean it up a good deal. But even if they give it the graphics of the day, they don't talk about the sin. But did you notice when we read in Matthew, you'll call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And here in Genesis, we have the first gospel given to us in that very context, do we not? It's in the context of sin, original sin, the first episode of sin. When Adam and Eve have sinned grievously against God. And by the way, they sinned in the context of perfection. We sin with sin all around us. We live in in sin. Right? But they sinned in the context of sinlessness. Perfection. There were no thorns and thistles in the garden. We go out to work in the garden in the summertime, or maybe even in the wintertime when you're cleaning it up, so it'll be ready, beautiful, ready for things to start sprouting and coming up in the spring. And there are the weeds. And we complain. Adam and Eve didn't have any weeds to complain about. You ever think about that? There were no mosquitoes popping them on the neck. You say, oh, you think mosquitoes are part of the fall. Yeah. I I do. I think they were friendly mosquitoes before the fall. And then they became angry mosquitoes after the fall. There was none of that. Nothing to provoke sin. And we look and we think, boy, if we lived in that, I I could probably get by without sinning a day or two. Uh, No, we wouldn't. Adam and Eve didn't. Sin came. Did you notice how it's described? What happens here when they sin? First thing they notice is something's not right. Something, something is wrong. At least they perceive it to be wrong. And so they try to fix it by sewing fig leaves together. And then they hide 
from God. They alienate themselves, they're ashamed of themselves, and they're afraid of God. And that's all the results of sin and the symptoms of sin. We live in a culture now that says, oh, that's some puritanical uh, ethic mores foisted upon you by your forefathers. You, you know, you don't need to feel bad about that. You don't need to have shame about that. You don't need to, to feel like you ought to, to do that in, in hiding. You should come out. But that's the context here is sin, shame, fear. And then comes the gospel. And the gospel comes in the context of a condemnation against Satan as he is personified in the serpent. Do you notice that? God doesn't address the woman and the man until later. He starts with the source of the problem. With Satan. The father of lies. Ephesians 2. A passage that perhaps many of you, if not all of you, are familiar with. One that we've looked at in the course of Pastor Morris's series just recently, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. The prince of the power of the air. That's Satan. That God is cursing. In Genesis chapter 3. The Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock. And then he tells what's going to happen. But then he says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman. That's part of the good news. That's part of the gospel. So you see the the first point there, the proto-evangelium is God's answer to our sin. Sean mentioned just a few moments ago. This has, for centuries and centuries and centuries, been referred to as the Proto-Evangelium. Proto, first, early, Evangelium, the gospel. We get our word evangel from that. The first gospel, the first preaching of the gospel is right here. And then that same message goes right on through the scriptures. That's the reason some theologians have suggested that the gospel is the unifying theme of all scripture. I make it a little bigger than that. I say it's the covenant because God deals with his people through his eternal covenant. The blood of the eternal covenant we just read about in Hebrews. And then that eternal covenant is manifested historically with Adam, with Noah, with Abraham with Moses, with David, and finally with Christ, who's the better covenant, the better mediator of a better covenant. So that gospel is part of the covenant, 
the covenant of grace we refer to. So whether you want to say the gospel is the unifying theme, it's the constant through all of Scripture, or the covenant of grace is the constant through all of Scripture, that may be quibbling just a bit. It doesn't matter. But the gospel is right here, and notice that the gospel is an answer to sin. Don't ever forget that. If, if, if we divorce the gospel from sin, the gospel's meaningless. You see, if we don't go to our friends, our neighbors, our colleagues, our children, our grandparents, and talk to them about the gospel in the context of sin, it's no wonder they don't understand why it's important. If there is no sin, then there is no, no reason for good news. Good news is in contrast to bad news. You know, we often say, well, I've got good news, I've got bad news. And we usually want to hear the bad news first, right? And then tell me the good news. Because the good news answers. And that's the case here. The bad news is Adam and Eve are in a world of hurt here. They're alienated from God. They're hiding from God. They're ashamed of themselves. And they can't do a thing about it. They tried and didn't work. Their effort to knit together fig leaves And God saw right through it, pun intended. Do you notice how this passage ended? After God tells them the good news, he tells them there's consequences of sin. Woman's going to suffer more in childbirth. Man, you're going to struggle in your day-to-day labors. Because the earth is cursed. It's going to produce all those things that are they're counter to you. They're going to be difficulties for you. But you notice what he did at the very end? He took skins, which necessitated the killing in the garden, the first death that we read about, and he covered them. He did something for them they couldn't do for themselves. That's the good news. That's the gospel. Is that God would save his people from their sins. Adam and Eve, living in the garden, they sinned. God had told them, you can eat from all the trees, just one, don't eat from it. That day you will surely die. And they come along, and they do it, and already they're beginning to taste death. Shame, fear, that's all part of, that's spiritual death. But ultimately, Adam and Eve are going to die, and we read about their deaths later on. First came the spiritual death, then comes the physical death. That's the same with you and with me. We experience spiritual death when we sin. It affects us that way. Listen, listen, do you remember David? 
If we had time, we'd go back and we'd read Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. There's something of a memoir of David's life, particularly in the context of his, his sin and the kind of effects that it had on him. Do you remember he says, my bones, because I hid my sin, because I didn't deal with my sin, because I didn't confess my sin, acknowledge my sin, repent of my sin, my bones grew old and decrepit and were, in fact, dying away. Do you ever think about that? We are, a, we are a totality as human beings. We're not just soul and we're not just body. We're body and soul. And so when we sin against God, the effects of a sin of our soul, which is the seat of man, the seat of sin, can often have negative effects on our bodies. Now, don't go out and say, Pastor said... So-and-so's body is breaking down because he's a sinner. He can just, just deal with his sin, just confess his sin. His body will get all better. Well, no, that's not what I'm saying. But there is a relationship. There's also the other relationship, isn't there? Sometimes our bodies begin to, to fail us because that's the nature of living in a fallen world. It's appointed for man once to die. But because of, the, because of the effects of sin, that is, our bodies are aging and decaying, sometimes that can have a negative spiritual effect on us, can it? We're feeling so badly, so poorly in our physical bodies the pain, the distraction. In having COVID last week, I'll confess, it was tough to read my Bible. You know, I'd heard about the brain fog. Well, I don't know if it's real in everybody, but it was real in me. Now, some of you are thinking, well, you've always a little foggy. But, <laughs> but I was more foggy last week than normal. And it made reading the scriptures difficult. And being out of God's word contributes to spiritual decline. Not being able to concentrate on prayer leads to spiritual decline. So what the spiritual can affect the body and the body can affect the spiritual, we're, we're made that way. Here's the beautiful thing. It's just what we read in Matthew 1 and what we're seeing here. I'll put enmity between you, between your offspring, bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And then God comes to the end and he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to take care of you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cover you. I'm going to cover your sins. I'm going to deal with your needs. He made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. He can take good care of us. And it all flows out of verse 15. The context of sin. 
God came. And did you notice? I hope you did. If you didn't, please do. We don't have any reason to believe otherwise. Notice, they heard as they've sinned. And immediately they're, they're, they, they realize something's wrong. They try to fix it. They sew the fig leaves together. And verse 8 says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Have you ever thought about that? Just like that. They've sinned. They need help. They're trying to do it. And they can't. And God shows up. I mean, just read it. There's nothing in, that indicates in this passage that there's a gap of time here. There is a flow in the, in the language. They sewed fig leaves together. They made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Isn't that just like the Lord? When we need him, he's there. He doesn't wait. And did you notice, he didn't wait for them to call either. There's no no genuine or feigned prayer. Oh, Lord God, please come and help us. They're sinners. They're dead. They don't know they need help, but God does, and he comes to them in the cool of the day. They've hid themselves, and they still don't say anything, but God does. And God knows where they are. He's he's omniscient. He's all-knowing. But for their sake, he calls to them. Where are you? And they respond, I I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid. Who told you? God just leads them to repentance here. Who told you? Well, the woman... Jeremy Ingram did that to his fiancée, Brandy, just this morning. Well, Brandy. Brandy said we were supposed to. And I said, well, hello, Adam. And we are all sons of Adam. But you notice what she did? Well, the serpent. She didn't own it either. The serpent. So God just right there says, okay, serpent, let's deal with you first. Then he goes on, he deals with Adam and Eve. See, just because they projected it off on Satan didn't get them out of it. There were still consequences to their sins. But again, we've got one more thing to see, the second point. And I've covered it, so we won't go in detail, but I want to say a few words about it. Again, 
to be sure you understand that this passage, because it's part of an organic whole, not a whole bunch of dis- different little periods of happenings that God's reacted to man, God is unfolding his revelation consistent with his eternal covenant. I'll put enmity between you and the woman. By the way, aren't you glad? Do you understand that if God had not right here said, I'm going to do something. I'm going to put enmity between my people and Satan. Then we would just follow Satan right along. He'd just be our best bud. Sometimes he's a little too close to buddy like he is. But God put an enmity there. We're supposed to have a healthy hatred for Satan, for Satan's ways, for Satan's lies, for Satan's minions. God designed it that way. He put it there. I will put enmity between you and the woman. What does enmity mean? Here's what John Currid in his excellent Genesis commentary says. Enmity signifies hostile intent. We're supposed to be hostile to Satan. He's hostile toward us. Hostile intent of such severity that it can lead to murder. And he gives examples. We find this in Ezekiel 25, 15, Ezekiel 35, 5, Numbers 35, 21, and 22. And then Currid goes on. We must understand that the new order, which is announced in Genesis 3, includes extreme hatred animosity, and the desire to murder. That's the way we're supposed to feel towards Satan and sin. Because that's the way Satan and sin feel toward us. We should hate sin. And yet, we live in a culture that glorifies sin, doesn't it? There was a time, and some of us in this room have hair gray enough and hair not enough to remember when extramarital affairs were shameful. When premarital affairs were shameful. When children out of wedlock were shameful. And we live in a culture that celebrates those sins now. And I won't even go on to some of the more abominable sins of our culture. Which now we're having shoved down our throat on TV commercials, in television programs, in movies, pop-ups on our internet. Commercials for medications. And yet we're supposed to hate it. It makes it for a tough struggle for Christians, doesn't it? The whole world says, accept it. And God says, hate it. So how do we know 
that this offspring, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. How do we know that her offspring, that's the he who shall bruise your head, serpent, your head, Satan. How do we know that offspring is Jesus? Well, Micah tells us. In that wonderful passage that tells us about the incarnation that's going to take place in Bethlehem. He says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Daniel refers to Jesus as the ancient of days. Here, this one that's going to be born in Bethlehem is of ancient days. And he's going to be the ruler. He's going to be the king we sang about. His reigning son, thy righteousness, he to thy people shall right bring. With justice shall thy poor redress and crush the men who them oppress. This one from of old, in Galatians 3.16 Paul says this, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. So here, Paul ties the offspring in Genesis 3.15 to the offspring in, in Genesis chapter 17 in the covenantal context with Abraham. And we can just trace this right on out. We're going to learn more and more about him all through the Old Testament And it culminates in that last day in the fullness of time with our Savior, Jesus Christ. So do you see see the scarlet thread that moves from this passage all the way through the scriptures? We have to never take for granted. I've said this before 15 15 years now. 15 Christmases with y'all. That's amazing, isn't it? Thank you for tolerating me. Fifteen years, I've reminded you that Christmas ought not to be some syrupy, sentimental time of life. It's a time to meditate intelligently with heartfelt love on this Jesus who came to save his people from their sins. Yes, he took on flesh in the womb of Mary. Yes, he was born. Yes, he lived a perfect, sinless life. He went to the cross and he suffered and died. He was raised. He is even now seated on high. So we don't get syrupy and sentimental about Jesus. We glorify in his name. We glorify him. We honor him. When we think of this little one born, we have to immediately think he's the king of creation. He's the king of glory. He's the Lord God Almighty. And he's coming again. The incarnation of Christ Jesus. This verse in chapter 3, verse 15, is about the grace of God taking away shame, taking away fear, taking away humiliation, taking away our condemnation because he conquered sin. 
and he conquered the source of sin. Our catechism tells us this about him as our king, that he is not only subduing us to himself, but he is conquering his enemies and our enemies so that we might be saved. Aren't you glad that we have this child, this king, this savior? Father, thank you. We ask you now to bless your people with this Savior Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.